Donnie, I think your list, I can already tell your list is neater than mine. Like your check mark, like mine are, oh, I wish I could show Donnie's you. This is like color coded. <laughs> oh no, no. <laughs> Hi, Disha. Hey, Donnie. And welcome, everyone, to Ursa Short Fiction, the podcast where we geek out on our favorite short stories. I'm Donnie Walton, author of The Final Revival of Opal and Nev. And I'm Disha Filia, author of The Secret Lives of Church Ladies. As always, this show is produced with support from you. Become an Ursa member today by going to ursastory.com slash join. You'll get exclusive bonus episodes, and you'll help fund future stories and conversations. Today, we are so excited to welcome Jocelyn Nicole Johnson, author of the acclaimed 2021 collection, My Monticello. It also includes the story, Virginia is Not Your Home, which we featured right here on this podcast. So if you haven't listened yet, go do that and then come back here for the full conversation. My Monticello was called a masterly feat by the New York Times, which placed third on Time Magazine's 10 best books of the year. My Monticello won the Library of Virginia Fiction Award, the Weatherford Award, the Lillian Smith Prize, the Balcones Prize, and was a finalist for many other prizes, including a National Book Critics Circle Award, a Penn Faulkner Award, and an LA Times Book Award. Johnson has been a fellow at Ten House, Hedgebrook, and the Virginia Center for the Creative Arts. Her writing appears in Guernica, The Guardian, and elsewhere. Jocelyn is a veteran public school art teacher, and she lives and writes in Charlottesville, Virginia. Such a great, great writer. And, you know, what really strikes me about this collection is, you know, we say all the time that place can operate as a character. And usually Mm -hmm. when we say that, you know, we mean that a story can evoke the feel or the qualities of a city or town or region. And in My Monticello, we get not only the evocation, but we get very specific details about very yes. specific places. <laughs> so I have never been to Monticello, not really sure mm-hmm. that I want to go. And and yet I see it so clearly in the mm-hmm. title story. It's like I'm visiting it through Jocelyn's writing. I see it from the gift shop to the furniture inside. And, and that level of detail lends an extreme into intimacy to these stories. Jocelyn, mm-hmm. as a writer, makes use of reality so well in her work. Setting, but also history, is, is a launching place for her imagination, which is just so vast. And she wrote the title novella in the wake of the Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville in 2017. Um, she lives in Charlottesville, as, as you mentioned, Disha. And I appreciate her processing history as it happens through, through her art. And I very much relate to that as well. Absolutely. And like you, I've not visited Monticello. And after this reading the story, I sort of decided I never need to visit there. Right. And I feel like Jocelyn kind of gave me what I needed to know of what that place is. But then she it's in her um, imagining of this dystopian scenario that takes place there. It amplifies the horror of the place. You know, yeah. I don't know if you've kind of felt that. And then there, you know, there's a, a scene, I, I won't give any spoilers in, in this intro, but, you know, the scene where the grandmother engages the house in a very particular room. You you remember when, I, like when that moment happened in the yeah. story, it took my breath away because it hearkened, it really evoked 
you know, the centuries of, uh, you know, of, of enslavement and, and, and the cruelty and, and all of the, um, you know, all the, that our ancestors endured in places like Monticello. And so in that one moment that just, you know, is literally breathtaking, I feel like there was some sort of, I don't know if reclamation is the word of what Jocelyn did there, but it was Mm. definitely where, as you said, it's this really direct engagement with history in a way I've just never seen anyone do in fiction before. Yeah, it's super exciting. And, you know, we've talked so far about the the novella that is the the title story, but there Mm -hmm. are also before that ending novella, there are so many rangy, you know, wonderful stories that are also, you know, touching on various themes and and kind of integrating Jocelyn's background as a teacher, Mm -hmm. um, her experience as a, a young person growing up in Virginia, you know, all of those things, her experience as a woman. And so I'm, I'm so excited for this conversation. And with that, Here it is, our conversation with Jocelyn Nicole Johnson. Jocelyn Nicole Johnson, welcome to the Ursa podcast. We're so excited to have you. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Yay. So I thought, you know, we just start talking about the journey of my Monticello to publication and and what your story is as a writer and how this very relevant, beautiful collection came together. Yeah. So I had a long journey to publishing this particular, having this be my debut. I had been writing just because I love writing and making things for a really long time. But kind of more seriously thinking about publication for a good 15 years or so. And I had gotten my first agent about 12 years ago by reading, I don't know, for any writers out there, by reading at a, a workshop, at Ten House Workshop. You know, you, when you go to workshops, you often have an opportunity to read in front of your peers and teachers. And it's kind of harrowing and scary to get up there and your voice is shaking. But I encourage people to put themselves out there because you never know who's listening. And more to the point, you get a chance to think about what you're making in this new way. So I, I read and I ended up being scouted by someone and signing with an agent kind of really early and making a collection that didn't get out, that didn't end up, you know, becoming a published book. And then a few years later, I did that again. I wrote a book, a different book, found a new agent who was lovely, put it out there, it didn't become a published book. And then this, by the time I got to this book, I, I was just kind of making it for myself and thinking about what do I want to do and not thinking so much about what will be publishable or what will someone oh. want to to buy. I was kind of just thinking about just what I wanted to try to say. And so it was really nice when I actually found an agent for this book and found a publisher for this book because I was more excited about finding people who were excited about what I was already doing instead of trying to fit myself into something that someone else wanted to make already, if that makes sense. Mm Mm-hmm. Definitely. I noted that your collection is dedicated to, and this is a quote, my parents who had me in Virginia and made it home. And can you talk a bit about centering Virginia um, along with the themes of the collection? And I think you're still in Virginia. and, And can you tell us why you still call Virginia home? Yeah, so I live in Charlottesville. I'm in my parents' basement right now (laughs) because they don't have terrible dogs that bark all the time. Um, (laughs) They are now my neighbor since the pandemic. I really centered this in Virginia 
just because it's where I've grown up, where I've lived, where I was born. And so I was writing stories without thinking about Virginia in particular, but just setting stories in places I knew. Uh, at some point, though, I realized that this idea of home and what makes a place home and what makes a place be able to be claimed as yours was kind of central. And that kind of became the force that made me say, which stories do I want to pull together into this collection? And then to kind of write towards that idea. And that kind of, for me, came, I kind of was born into it because my parents and my whole, my older brother all were born and raised in South Carolina. And so I had this kind of, I inherited this idea of home was going back 10 hours to South Carolina where my aunties and uncles and a bazillion cousins lived and my grandma and then coming home to Virginia. But then it also was really troubled by more recent politics um, where uh, kind of on the national stage and then here in Charlottesville, there were people saying, you shouldn't feel at home here as a black woman, as a person, art person, as a person who believes as you do, who presents as you do, you shouldn't feel at home. And so I kind of made me interrogate that idea kind of even more closely in these stories and and just in my life. Mm -hmm. So interesting. You mentioned being sort of inspired by the news events that were unfolding at the time, and we particularly see that in in the title novella, My Monticello. Can you talk a little bit about how close to the events of what we on the national stage are sort of just referring to in short as Charlottesville, Mm -hmm. um, those, those events, how close were you writing that novella to those events? And what was it like for you emotionally kind of writing through that. Yeah, so it's never fun when your town becomes a name that means something. It's never it's usually not a good thing when where you live becomes shorthand for something and for our town in 2016 when we were the host to the Unite the Right rally, the unwitting host to this, you know, violent white supremacist rally here, you know, Charlottesville became that and then again, unfortunately, a few days ago at the time of taping this, you know, we had a shooting at UVA. Right. Which again, Charlottesville becomes synonymous with something. I wrote really directly. I think that novella was a, di- a really direct response for me to those events because living here wasn't just, you know, a day or a weekend of a terrible, you know, protest where someone was killed. It was kind of a whole summer of buildup and we hadn't really seen something quite like this before. It was kind of the convergence of this very radicalized white public white supremacist movement, but also firearms and Confederate statues and this re-emergence of all these imageries from past genocides. And so I didn't really know what to do with it, like how I wanted to respond as a mom of a young son, as a public school teacher. And so I ended up kind of writing my way into it. I don't know if either of you've had this experience, but Sometimes I write about something to try to figure out, yeah. not to say what I know about it, but to yes. kind of figure out what to do with it emotionally. Mm-hmm. And and that's what I was trying to do in that piece. Yeah, I really relate to that, having written so much of Opal and Nev during the fall of 2016 and sort of mm-hmm. figuring out what to do with the emergence of Trump and my growing fear as we got closer to Election Day. So I felt... When you write so close to something like that, it really, there's a certain heat to the writing. And I almost felt at moments that I was sort of 
writing it in a in a in a fugue kind of state. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and I don't know how you felt if you felt the same way. And especially because your your story, the novella, is a little bit in in the future. It's a little bit speculative, and it requires mm-hmm. you to kind of do all this imagining. And I just wonder what that was like for you. Yeah, I think um, I had that same experience. I wrote it about a year later. I thought on that, you know, that weekend and that time and everything that came after it uh, in that following year. And also just learned, uh, you know, our town kind of had this reflective period where we had all these events about kind of the history of Black Charlottesville. And, you know, there were so many things I knew already. I knew that enslaved people had built, you know, a lot of UVA, but I didn't know that like students brought you know, there's black slave servants to UVA. It just it just was an image I didn't have in my mind. So my mind was filling with all these um, kind of horrific uh, images and just interesting images and different kinds of images about the past that I kind of folded all those along with things I saw and felt and heard about that really happened here. And then I kind of imagined into the future what the future would look like if that kind of energy went unchallenged or, you know, was given fuel or combined with, you know, our climate issues and combined with our political kind of instability and and our infrastructure. Unfortunately, we've gotten closer, you know, to that Mm -hmm. feeling since I wrote it. When I wrote it, we hadn't had the storming of the Capitol. We hadn't had covid We hadn't had some of the pressures that make the novella, you know, that I think are still present in the novella just because they were already present. Those those feelings, I think, were already present even before we had those bigger things. We could kind of feel it coming. And I think they reflect in the novella a little bit. And also in the novella, My Monticello, there's a character who interprets something her mother says as uh, her mother saying, there's nothing left for us to do with that old history, but bear it. And when I read that, it reminded me of Gail Jones's novel, Corregidora, in which a woman ancestor insists that all her descendants must bear witness and make generations. And by that, she means bear offspring who will memorize and then recite the atrocities committed against them by their former enslaver and that they will tell, you know, this history right up into Armageddon. So my first question is, I'm wondering who some of your literary heroes are and who influences your work? Yeah. So I'm kind of all over the place. I mean, there's definitely a big strand of um, any writer who mixes, who uses kind of a literary sensibility with a bit of genre and genre to get at something about the truth. Like I think about like poetry, when you read a poem, that's a good poem. Often a certain kind of poem tells you something that you kind of already knew, but you had never looked at. And I think there's a way that you know, some writers, I'm thinking of Octavia Butler, I'm thinking of a writer like Nana Kwame Ajay-Brenya, who will use, or even a writer like Charles Yu, who will use genre, will use science fiction, will use speculative fiction to get at what immigration feels like, to get at what memory feels like, to get at what being othered feels like, in these really interesting ways. And I think I'm always drawn to writers like that. And then I, it feels almost trite to say it, but writers like Toni Morrison, who just take a concept, an idea, something um, something pulled from the world. I'm thinking of Beloved in particular, like reading, you know, a bit of history and then imagining this this whole world around it with these very 
fully realized, complicated, and engaging characters. I just was in awe when I read a writer like that in college. And then I see contemporary writers who built these worlds around, you know, brown and black characters, brown and black women in particular, artists like uh, Danielle Evans, like Jamel Brinkley, who are thinking about, I don't know, the collection's so nice because you get all these different, different people that build a world kind of together in this short story collection, right? You have you have kind of resistance of one story of what it means to be a man or a woman or a black person or a white person. You kind of get this whole um, variety, this diversity that's in conversation with one another. So I'm always drawn to those kind of writers, too, that build collections like that or build, you know, communities in their work like that. And thank you. And, you know, the other question I have is, what advice do you have for other writers who are grappling with these sort of very complicated histories, um, complicated ideas around identity and experience and race and, and so forth? Oh, gosh, what advice do I have in that particular uh, realm? I don't know. I personally, I'm not that brave, but I think you just have to kind of cultivate a certain kind of bravery. I mean, I think when you make something, whatever it is, if you're going to make art and you're going to make stories, and in particular, if you're going to speak about things that in our culture can be unspeakable, like race, not even race, but racism, about, but even identity, gender, you know, those things hold so much weight. And I think that you have to cultivate a kind of either bravery or just pretending, put your hand over your over your ears and like, no one's going to see this and, and, and make it outside of that anticipating expectation and make it with an intention and an honesty as best you can and know that you're going to your humanness is going to show through and that's okay. Your imperfectness is going to show through and that's okay. And be thoughtful and think about, you know, imagine different kinds of readers, but you also have to just kind of go for it and and try to say as best you can what you want to say first before you start censoring yourself, I think. Mm. I don't know. What do you all think? This is a good question. (laughs) Yeah, it's so... Yeah, it's it's so hard. I think the thoughtfulness for me is the main thing is to really take your time to think about this world that you've built and look at it from many different angles and be as thorough as you can while still being organic to the story. Like that's the thing you want to be organic to the storytelling process and remember that you're telling a story. You're not writing a screed. You're Mm -hmm. not writing a polemic. You are really trying to kind of express something through these characters and you just have to think deeply about them and the time it takes is the time that it takes. Mm -hmm. I would agree and just appreciate what both of you have said about this. I think we have to give ourselves permission to grapple with things that are are complex and know that it's impossible to do that with integrity and do it in a compelling way and make everybody happy. (laughs) And so Mm -hmm. just live with the fact that somebody's not going to like it. That's right. And that's okay. And I, because of course, if everybody liked it, you're really not saying anything, Mm -hmm. you know? And, and so it does, you know, take a large degree of courage, as you said, Jocelyn, but I don't think any of us think as we're drafting or even revising, I am being courageous, (laughs) you know, Mm -hmm, we're just trying to tell a good story. 
I think if we just, yeah. you know, like that's our, that's our job is to tell the, uh, uh, the best story that we can tell. And then what people do with it after that, that's really not our business. Yeah. I think I really, I appreciate it. I heard some writer talking about this and I can't remember who it was, but she was talking about how a lot of things she read growing up, the person writing it couldn't imagine her as a reader. And so there were things she could see in it that they could never have imagined just because her identity, her ethnicity didn't fit into who they could imagine as a reader. And I do think it's it can be helpful to look at what you've made and try to imagine a different reader than you coming to it and how they what they might see, particularly if you're writing a variety of people. You know, I have a community of people, diverse people who come together on the hill in Monticello. And what is it going to look like if, you know, if someone of an identity that's not mine or mine, who's, what is it going to feel like in someone Mm. else's ears? You know, I think there is value in that, even if you don't choose to change something, but just imagining. Yeah. And I think as a public school teacher, I have a little bit of that built into my mindset because I had to create for, you know, over 20 years, I was, you know, writing lessons for a room full of students who were all over the place and what they, not only in their identities and their ethnicities and genders, but also just in their personalities. They're just ways of being. And so I was constantly trying to create a message that could meet different people at different places all at the same time. That segues really um, well into a question that I did have about your background as a teacher, not only how it influences, you know, you as a writer in terms of content and themes of your stories, but how teaching art specifically influences your process of, of writing. Yeah. So, well, I'm not teaching art now, but I did write this whole collection while I was teaching full time. And I mean, just at a practical level, I mean, most people who write, have other jobs and they have to do other things. And for me, the kind of calendar of teaching is it's super intense. But then for me, I didn't, I was lucky enough that I didn't have to work in the summer. So I had this space. So it was kind of like the summer was this time for drafting, drafting, drafting. And then throughout the year, I would like edit these stories that I was making and meet with my writer group once a month and think about uh, work that way. So from a practical standpoint, that was one thing. I do think being a visual art teacher I think of stories visually, and I think that probably shows Mm. in the work that I, in these stories, let's just say that. I probably attend to objects and the way things look and the way, you know, and description in a particular kind of way, just from being someone who thinks about that. Yeah, there's such detail in my Monticello about the house that the kind of ragtag band of neighbors um, flee to in the wake of these very violent white supremacist events. There's such detail to the furniture and the paintings and the quality of light and, and all of that. Did you spend a lot of time at Monticello kind of like taking in all the look of the house and those things? I did. I did spend some time, but not a ton. I have to say I'd been to Monticello, so I had just general knowledge of it. But it was, first of all, it was so much more interesting to go there when I knew I was writing this story. Yeah. <laughs> Once I had like, it made it so much more 
engaging. Like everyone's like, why are you taking those notes? I was like, this is so fascinating. And I'm really, they're like, you know, thinking about whatever the uh, docent is saying, but I'm really like, which character is going to be in this room? And oh, look, you can <laughs> yeah. see this. Yes. Or, you know, what it, snacks will they get from Fifth the gift shop? <laughs> yeah. I mean, it was so much fun because I, this place that had felt for me personally, I had an ambivalence about it because it's it is a really beautiful space in some ways you know the land is absolutely gorgeous around it you have this great view and then also you know you have this just haunting feeling of you know the horror too for me that's what I think about when I go there and this allowed me to put it to make it to put used to it <laughs> in my own imagination and to kind of claim it as my own and you know whatever they were saying I knew I could use it in my story the way that I wanted to and I think for a lot of writers well for me as a writer it's the perfect place to get like the introverts revenge you know I I didn't go out there and yell in the faces of the white supremacists that came to our town but I did get to yell at them in my own imagination in the story Mm -hmm. I or And not just yell at them, but be indignant, be angry, be right, be righteous, be wrong, (laughs) be all the things, be human, be fully human in the face of something that it would have been, for me personally, difficult to manage that in this moment. But I could manage Mm -hmm. it at my desk, Mm -hmm. sitting and taking an action and creating a reaction and then creating a variety of reactions and not being reduced to one response, right? I could have all the responses or my characters could have all these responses. I want to talk a bit about another story in the collection, Control Negro, the very first story. I think it's the first story in the collection. Mm -hmm, It is. Mm -hmm. And for me, that story brought to mind the voice of a character, a professor in Rian Amilcar Scott's novella, Special Topics in Loneliness Studies. And that novella ends his collection, The World Doesn't Require You. And Rian has written that that novella was a way to, he said, dramatize all that is contradictory or absurd about academia. And he really skewers academia. Mm. And so I'm wondering, mm. what was the impetus for you for Control Negro? Yeah, so that story um, was also inspired by a real-life event at University of Virginia here. Unfortunately, in 2015, um, a a student, a black honor student named Martise Johnson, was bloodied by uniformed officers as he was leaving a bar on this kind of strip that sits right across from campus, right across from the lawn, where students go on Friday nights and, you know, drink and run around and, and act the fool. And he got turned away from a bouncer, and he was confronted by these officers, presumably thinking he had a, a false ID, which he didn't. His ID was actually not false. It was just from a different state, and he ended up with 11 stitches in his head, and there was a lawsuit, and there was a video of this event. At any rate, um, that happened, and I just... Again, you know, you read something, you see something, you hear about something in your community, and it sits with you. And for me, it sat with me because I had a son who was much younger then, but I was imagining preparing him for the world. And that story made me think about how when we prepare our young people who are other in any way, a person of color, uh, a young woman, how sometimes we 
preparing them for the world and for its injustices seems like its own kind of injury. <laughs> so yeah. like when our like our when our yeah our daughters go out and we say dress this way this will keep you safe or you have to dress this way or you're not going to be safe if you do this or that. There's an injury in that like there's something mm-hmm. about that or if we say, you know, to in my case to my son, you know, you need to be really aware of if you get pulled over in this very particular way that someone else may not have to be. So, I just kind of twisted this event of violence in my mind and created this Frankenstein-like father who, because of his own history with violence growing up, kind of does this social experiment with his son. I don't recommend his parenting and <laughs> no <laughs> to anyone, and it is not what I would do. But it's kind of an earnest question, you mm-hmm. know. I guess the question of the story is, you know, what the father says is, given the right conditions, could America create a conditions for life and liberty for someone like for me, he thinks as a black man, for someone like me, mm-hmm. is that possible? And I think that was an actual real question, <laughs> even though the story is really out there in its premise. That's a, I think that's a question that people can come to in mm-hmm. earnestness. And I think that it's a question that I was thinking about and how just the psychological injury of having to ask that question has created him into the monster that he kind of is in the story. Mm-hmm. Because he's not a monster. He's a, he's a, he's a man. He's right. a person. He's human. And th- that touches on another similarity I felt um, between Control Negro and Rian's novella. And there was this current of loneliness that runs through both of these stories and both the characters, the main characters, and like a subtext of loneliness. And so could you talk a bit about your, your process of getting to know the father character and all his layers? Yeah, that's a great question. I think loneliness is probably a theme in the book. I mean, mm-hmm. I think I'm not a lonely person, but I'm just an introvert. And I think there's a way that can relate because there's this, I think there's, I have a bit of separation, you know, I'm a person constantly watching. And so that probably is a little bit borrowed from me. I think, I mean, that's the thing. All these characters are really different. They're not the same because it's a short story collection and the voice of each story is quite different. And the narrators, you know, you have children, you have men and women, you have, you know, groups and individuals. They're really different, but they're all, they all have to be me too, right? <laughs> Somehow. I wouldn't do the thing these things these characters would do, but I have to draw on myself and also the people I see around me and, you know, what I imagine. I would say for that character, you know, he's a really prickly person um, with a biography that doesn't belong to anyone I, I know, but I was able to imagine that. I don't know. Maybe I'm a horrible person inside. I don't know. I don't think so. But to create that, I think you just, it's like the premise was there. And then I had to build a person that felt like the person who could do this, Mm -hmm. but also felt like the person who could do this in in kind of the worst way, because he's doing kind of horrible things, but also in the most sympathetic way. Mm -hmm. Horrible things have happened to him. We, you know, we have this moment in the middle of the story after we kind of see this terrible experiment where we we are with him in this moment of of transformative violence, right? That isn't even that violent, but for him, it's this kind of before after moment as a child. And so I think you're constantly, one thing that helps when you're writing about, to circle back to our earlier question about race or gender or difficult things or identity, is if you make individual people 
who aren't a marker for a whole group of people. He's very much his own individual person with his own individual, you know, experience with his mom, with his community, with his work, with his baby mama, with all the people around him. He has a very specific experience of them. And I think, you know, if you start to think, what is my character? Like, what would this person eat? And what would this person do? And everything doesn't have to match up. They can have contradiction in them. I think that helps. Absolutely. With your this collection as a whole, you've created what um, I read in, in an article your editor, Retha Powers, calls a symphony about who gets to call America home. And I just I just love that quote. Um, and so one of the key themes in my Monticello is belonging, specifically belonging in America. And so that loneliness that we are talking about that's so palpable in Control Negro and in the other stories, it's a counterpoint to belonging. And then um, there's a story in the collection, Something Sweet on Our Tongues, which is really beautiful and really aching. And it's written with this we point of view. And the narrator is a collective of black children in a school with white teachers. And, you know, that took me back because that was my elementary school experience. And that shared sense of belonging in a, in a white space and, and the little ways that we resisted and created chaos as a unit um, <laughs> in small ways. So I want to know, you know, what is that story rooted in? Is it rooted in nostalgia or personal experience for you? Yeah, I love that. That story's fun. So I've taught for 20 years and the last five years I taught in Charlottesville city schools. And um, I think, I mean, there's a little, there's, there's different things in there, but for sure there is, Often I take kind of the opposite point of view. So that story, I thought of it as the teacher, from the teacher point of view of just how children can be so beautifully resistant. Like I kind of <laughs> admire them sometimes. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Because your task, and this is true if you're a parent as well, your task with kind of controlling this group of people, but they have a lot of power and sometimes they don't realize it. And sometimes they do. And it can be such a small power, the power to, you know, in that story, you know, the group is like, why are you calling out him? We were doing this or Joey's doing this or, you know, just that kind of really moving and, and, and genuine resistance of authority, I just think is really funny and interesting. And I definitely saw that and witnessed that and experienced it. As a teacher, you know, where you're trying to get a group of children to do one thing and they're set on doing another. But then being the person that I am in that story, instead of taking the view of the person who's tasked with controlling, I wanted to be in the bodies of the kids mm. and think about <laughs> mm -hmm. like their legitimate grievances, right? And not necessarily my students' legitimate grievances, but these imagined students, these boys in the story, it's a group of boys, the things they're holding and carrying and why they would rebel, you know, and why they would press here and there. And I just, the way that I felt for them and identified with, with their actual grievances mm -hmm. kind of came out in that story. So, yeah. Um, kind of transitioning from the we point of view to the you point of view, which I think is so brilliantly used in, in two different stories, mainly in Virginia is not your home, but also in buying a house ahead of the apocalypse. And both mm -hmm. stories have sort of got women at the center who are sort of struggling with life choices and, and where they are in their lives. How did you come to choose the second person point of view for those stories? And what do you think that second 
second person sort of unlocks in them. Yeah, so I'll start with Virginia is not your home. For that story, that's a story of kind of, you know, the first line of it is they hung that name on you at birth, but Virginia was never your home. And, you know, it's told by someone named Virginia or Jenny. And this kind of the whole story is this kind of her telling herself the story of her life, of how she wants to have a different name. She wants to be from elsewhere. For me, with that story, that voice came straight out. I just that sentence came to me, that you sent the you voice came to me. And it took me a while to figure out what would justify it or why someone would be speaking that way. And I think in the end, I thought the way you can tell yourself, you know, this character is telling herself the story of her life, but she's also warning herself and then she's hearkening herself and then she's chiding herself. She has all these different ways she's trying to kind of control this narrative and and pull it on track to what she thinks it's going to be. But the narrative's also pulling her and her life is also pulling her. So I kind of Again, I, that voice just came to me. It was the energy of the story. And then I, you know, towards the end, I had to kind of think about why it seemed to be working and then try to edit towards that. With um, the other story, Buying a House Ahead of the Apocalypse, that story, I had this idea of how do we plan for the future when it feels like the world is falling apart? You know, if you think about investing in a home, if you're going to buy a home, it's supposed to be this this thing that you know, accrues value over time and yada, yada. This is a story of someone who can hardly afford to buy her her first home and also is kind of shaken at this premise. Like, should I even try? Like, are things so bad that I shouldn't even try? But yet she wants to try. And so um, I had that written in scenes, you know, of someone going to meet a realtor and it just wasn't working. And at some point I thought, well, if I were going to buy a house, I'd have a list because I'm a compulsive list maker. And uh, I make lists that are just like a hot mess. And then I have to turn the paper over and like redo the list, part of the <laughs> list. And then I put a post-it on it and then I have like a side list. <laughs> and I've been doing that since college. I'm just like, I, my husband's like, you should make up a, a book of your list. Like they're just, I don't even know what they would tell about me. It would, it would probably be bad. <laughs> they're so, so satisfying I thought, though, <laughs> lists. They're so like, you know, just putting a little check mark by something. Just like, uh, yes, I love it. Yeah. Donnie, I think your list, I can already tell your list is neater than mine. Like your check mark, like mine are, oh, I wish I could show <laughs> you. This is like color coded. <laughs> oh, no. No. <laughs> mine are, oh, I don't know. They're like a scrawl. They start off with order. It's like the Sharpie. And then I have like, I don't know. It's a thing. At any rate. The story, once I realized she was making a list of what she needed to do, it made it work really well. It, it came together. It had an energy. It became where I could put one thing that was funny about trying to buy a house when you think the world's falling apart. Next, like, what it, what kind of hairstyle are you going to have in the apocalypse? Which I think about all the time with my <laughs> characters. I'm like, what is Denasia's hair like? If she's up at Monticello, Mm -hmm. like what hairstyle can support this? Like, what does she look like? You know what I mean? Just how is she caring for herself? What materials does she have for her hair for herself? I love it. But next to things that are really profound, like what will my dog, have we ruined the world for my daughter who's Mm -hmm. in college? You know, the character has these these two thoughts and because it's a bulleted story, they can sit side by side. Mm Mm-hmm. 
Now, and you, you've mentioned parenthood uh, that shows up in a couple of stories. And one of my favorite lines in the whole collection is from uh, the story, Virginia is not your home. And it's the line, don't accept the moldy hymnals, the marquee salvation, the wayward way that mama courts heaven like a scornful lover. Ugh, just breathtaking. Uh-huh. So I'm curious. Uh-huh. Uh, what conversation do you think or hope that this story is having with the church and with organized religion or or perhaps with something else? Oh, my gosh. That's a great question, which I could I want to know what you think of in your debut, Disha. Like with most things, I have complicated mm-hmm. feelings about that. And it probably does come through in that story. Right. So this character, you know, again, who's not me, but she's growing up in a place where, you know, there's some presence of church in her in her mom's life. And, you know, this idea of salvation or what's going to save you community-wide, the standard of it is not how she wants to present or is not what's compelling her forward. Mm-hmm. And the things that she finds exciting or interesting, you know, speaking French or the way she speaks is kind of looked down on. And so she's in conflict, even if she didn't want to be, just by being in this community, that, you know, what she wants to do is not what a young woman, you know, there's definitely this subtext that as a, especially as a young woman, it shouldn't be what she wants to do. So I don't know what conversations Mm -hmm. are there, but I, I do think it's important. And again, it takes a little bit of, I don't know if it's bravery Mm -hmm. or idiocy, but just to make a character that has that conflict because it's a real conflict in the world, right? right? People have that conflict. And I don't have to answer that this is the right way to be or, or that one is. I just have to say this person and the, her way of being sits in contrast to this community and that creates something in her, right? right. <laughs> and so that's what I was thinking about. You know, you you asked about my collection. I had some people assume that my book was like some sort of middle finger to the church. And and I think that doesn't give me enough credit, <laughs> you know, that like, as you described, what you're describing is a more nuanced conversation that can happen. And you're not trying to drive the conversation, just like I wasn't trying to drive the conversation. I just wanted to offer a story that was open to possibilities for what would hopefully be healing conversations. But I didn't want to direct the conversations, you know, like mm-hmm. you don't want to replace the church's dogma with your own dogma. You know, absolutely. Um, and so even the act of stirring and raising questions is, you know, it, it contradicts the way, you know, that a lot of us were raised in the church, you know, that questions mm-hmm. themselves are somehow evidence of lack of faith. And so the story, just writing the story the way that you've written the story, it makes the statement without being, you know, dogmatic. That's how I approached it, which is I didn't start from a place of, you know, wow, the church sucks. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. and I hope that part yeah. is, is, mm-hmm. is kind of of um, of evident. And I was hopeful for the kinds of conversations um, that the stories could spark, because I think stories have a lot of power to heal and to inspire people to look inward in the in ways that lecturing and dogma can't. And and that's Absolutely. what I hope for, you know, and that's what I think that your stories do as well. I That makes a lot of sense to me. And just to 
be clear, I didn't think your book was a middle finger to the church at all. Thank you. Um, at all. And I, but I do think just asking the question, just bringing it up, just having a person who has conflict can feel tenuous. It's like this third rail, like something that's mm-hmm. unspeakable. And I think for me, this book really isn't primarily looking at that particular tension, but thinking about race and racism, thinking about women, you know, in my Monticello, I've hidden this little utopia in the in the dystopian novella. You know, I have this group of people who live up on Monticello and create a refuge there and decide to make community across difference in a time of, you know, violence and of loss. They decide to create it. And it's a, a community that's led by women that has Denasia, this black woman, as kind of the centerpiece to it, and that is not motivated primarily by violence. And so that is something that that's important to me, and it's in contrast to what we see often as the story of a hero story. It's in contrast to what we see often when we look at a movie, a film, you know? It's, and I think that I'm glad that yeah. that's there. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Jocelyn, I'm curious, how does a story typically start for you? I think for me, it often just starts with like this moment of energy when I either overhear something, when someone says something to me, or when I hear about something that's happening in the community that doesn't sit right with me, that bothers me, that irks me, or that I think is like secretly fabulous, but no one else does. Or, you know, it doesn't have to be negative, but it's just something that stands out to me. I think I notice that my parents move next to me and so I see them a lot more. And my mom is constantly looking out the window and she's like opening the blinds, like that neighbor's hopping. I bet she fell out of her bed this morning. You know, she's like creating a story about something. (laughs) She has no idea if that person fell out of their bed, but I think I have that same impulse, which is like, I get part of a story and then I want to create the world around it and I'm imagining the world around it but I'm constantly picking up these little tiny and sometimes much bigger and more public um, images ideas thoughts even just this this horrible event that just happened in Charlottesville the other day where we had um, a shooting on campus made me think about and the campus was locked down for Overnight, students were just locked in place. And then my son's school was canceled the next day because the person hadn't been caught. And I thought about that, not so much the active shooter situation, but the the adjacent terror of waiting and being in lockdown and not knowing Mm. if something horrible might happen and how that's become such a feature of our lives. And I started to imagine like a story about it or just that piece of it stands out to me, you know, as opposed to the being right with the action, but being on that side where you're like, is everything, is everything going to change in this horrific way? Or 
is everything going to be fine? I don't know yet. I don't know what the world is in this moment. It could be two things or it could be either or, you know, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. it's interesting. So I'm, I just think that's how my mind works. So when those kind of things come to me or when someone just says something outrageous, I'm collecting it, you know, and then sometimes it becomes a story. So then once you have your story drafted, what's your revision process like? You know, and before times, before the pandemic, uh, I used to really try to get a full draft out, a pretty good, you know, a pretty full draft, because I write short stories, that's possible. It's much harder with a longer piece. And then I go back over it with my writing group, you know, getting input from other people, listen, and then in the end, reading it out loud to myself and hearing how it sounds are the things I do. I think having other readers is super, super helpful at some point because they can tell you, not because you're going to do everything someone else wants you to do in a, in a piece, but they're going to reflect back to you what your story is. Yeah. <laughs> but through their reaction, you're going to kind of see what you did more clearly. And then you're going to know maybe what's missing or what you put in there that you didn't even know you put in there that actually is more where you want to go. You know, it kind of just lets you see it. So I think having other readers is helpful. But in the end, then you have to go back and do that final work of making a choice of where you want to push, what could be added, what you want to pull away, and imagine those readers, what we talked about, like kind of imagining it in someone else's ears Mm -hmm. and what they're going to pull mm-hmm. from it and, and kind of be thoughtful about what you what you want to put in the world. Mm-hmm. And to close the loop on this, how do you know, Jocelyn, when it's done? I've heard people say this when they're reading, a, you know, from a published book, like they're still editing on it. I think there's a way you can be editing forever. <laughs> but I think if, you know, because you, the world changes, you change. And so you're constant, it's a moving target, like what you wanted to say, or you learn, you know, people still tell me things in this collection that they see that I put in there, but I wasn't aware of, you know, in some way. But I think when I read it and the, the sound of it and the rhythm, by, by the time I get to the end, I'm really thinking about, does it sound right? Does the energy pull you through it? Does it have like this, the right cadence? There's this so if I can read it aloud and stand to hear it and not feel mm, totally, mm-hmm. you know, and feel like, okay, like it, if I can read a piece of it aloud and it feels okay, then I feel like I'm, it's good enough and I can put it in the world and, and move on to the next thing. And thinking of the stories you've written, those that are in your collection and others, do you have a favorite story and do you have a favorite character? Oh my gosh. You know what? I don't have a favorite. I can't say I have a favorite. I, I'm always rooting for kind of the the outsider among outsiders. So there's like these minor characters like in the story, The King of Zandria, which is a story of an immigrant Nigerian father who comes to Alexandria, Virginia with his son, who's named Alex. There's a daughter in the story who's a super minor character named Justina. And she, the father's kind of despair, the father who's, we're with the father in the story, he describes her as wearing, what does he say? He says she wears drab trousers and polished loafers as if she were a man. And Mm -hmm. he, he has this kind of way that he doesn't approve of her in the story but I like secretly love her like so much (laughs) I think that she's like a favorite character of mine because I feel like she's different she's doing something different but she's also like a powerhouse in the story like the Uh. the son knows that she 
he says, Justina's always been the smart one, but she says, I have to do this here. You know, she's like holding it down. She, at one point she's like, you know, eating sunflowers. She's like taking over the apartment. This dad who's supposed to be the powerhouse of the, the of the family is kind of afraid of her. <laughs> you know what I yeah. mean? Yeah. And so there's like characters like that, that I'm constantly rooting for, even if they're not the center of the story always. Mm-hmm. I don't know. She just came to mind. Mm-hmm. I, I did love that detail of the sunflower seeds with the two bowls for the ones, the whole ones, and then mm-hmm. the, the seeds that she's, the, the husks that she shoot off of them. Yeah. It's so great. Yeah, so and that great. story is all about birds and about migration and about, that's like a whole theme in it. So I just putting that little extra love around her is like a little bunch of arrows to say this person yeah. is meaningful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What? Do you wish you could go back and say to pre-publication, Jocelyn, about the whole process of getting a book in the world? Yeah, it is a really strange and interesting process. I'm super thankful I've been able to complete the loop and have this book be in the world. And I knew because I, as I said earlier, I'd had two times of trying and not being published. I knew that there was nothing promised that it it might not happen for this book and might not ever happen. And so, and that even if it happened, I couldn't control (laughs) what people were going to say about that book or who was going to read it or how many copies would sell. And whether that be like, in this case, like so much good stuff has happened that I didn't expect, but it could have all been like bad or it's always a mix some at some point. Right. So I think what I would tell myself is Think about the writing. All you can control is the writing. Control what you can control, which is the writing. Enjoy the writing. Do your best with the writing. (laughs) What matters is the writing. You know, I just think you want to be thoughtful, but put that thought and care into that part of it because that's the part that you have the most control over. And then I have one final question. We talked about themes like belonging and, and loneliness in my Monticello in that collection. What are some of the themes that you're working on in you know the work that has that's going to be coming forth? Um, are you revisiting those themes? Are you writing uh, about other topics as well? Yeah, I think I think what I'm thinking about right now going forward is how do we change people's minds? How do we change the world? Where are the leverage? You know, I think we've seen such tremendous change in the last few years, and often in kind of a bad way, (laughs) where we've seen people compelled to be really nasty to one another, to be violent toward one another, to be radicalized towards one another in these particular ways. And, you know, that's not everything we see, but there's been kind of a change and what that looks like in my lifetime, whether that be from through social media, whether it be through the way we use and react with technology, who we find as compelling leaders. And one of the things I was thinking about is what if some of those forces could be used to compel us to do good? Or where are the leverage places where those kinds of things could move us toward addressing our climate issues or working together on some of the things that are problems that we we must address and work on, or even how they could change the story we tell ourselves about what we're doing with one another and for one another. Like even religion, we talked about this earlier, the way religion can be, it could be a tool to, to, and has sometimes been a tool to have us serve one another as opposed to 
separating us from one another or creating like almost like a war from one with one another right because of difference like what could that look like it's me again dreaming and imagining into story of what i want to see in the world or what i hope would be possible Thank you. I think that's a beautiful note to end on. Thank you so much, Jocelyn, for all the thinking you do, all the writing, brilliant work that you do. And thank you for joining us in this conversation. This was wonderful. Thank you very, very much. I really appreciate it. And thanks, everyone, for joining us. If you like what we're doing at URSA, be sure to share this podcast with your friends. And if you'd like to support us directly, become an URSA member by going to ursastory.com slash join. You'll help fund production of this show and keep us going. We'll see you next time. <laughs>